the farming program with Araquit Steel Stockholders, Withambrook Industrial Estate Gransom. For all your steel needs, call their friendly experts. Once again, we've water, water everywhere. Four years on, why are we having the same problems? What they've done, or rather what they haven't done in the EA for the last 20 years, has led us to the situation we're in today. What are the effects on the crops and the farmers' livelihoods? And the galling thing this time is we've drilled that farm nearly all with winter wheat and it's all ruined. And what about the general public? The British public end up paying more for the food but the British farmer does not get that increased revenue. We're out at Bardney in Lincolnshire surveying hundreds of acres underwater. On a lighter note, I've been to the British Farming Awards. We'll hear from some of the winners a little bit later. And we're looking ahead to a big heritage and vintage tractor show. Plus, of course, we look at the markets, the weather and the crops with some important agronomy advice from Sean Sparling. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Hello, welcome to the Farming Programme podcast. Uh, Apart from the weather, hope you've had a good week. Lovely to see so many at Lincoln Harvest Festival last Sunday. Sadly this week, the news really is all about the weather. Many parts of the country have suffered severe flooding and the fact that we seem to be in exactly the same position as four years ago, have no lessons been learnt? I met with several farmers at Bardney in Lincolnshire a few days ago to survey the devastating and, frankly, upsetting scene and spoke first to NFU Deputy President Tom Bradshaw. Yeah, it's a devastating scene out there. I mean, there are hundreds of acres underwater. And it's not the first time this has happened. And we always hear we're going to learn lessons, we're going to do things differently. But ultimately, actions speak far louder than words. And at the moment, the actions aren't happening. And you know, the farming families that are facing this devastation, there's hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of cost. A very, very uncertain year ahead. We've had an incredibly challenging harvest, the most expensive crop we've ever grown, the 2023 harvest. You know, yields haven't been great. And now on the newly drilled crop, will anything survive you know and and they're looking at this now and it is a financial disaster for them and you know we we can't put our members in this position time and time again expect them to carry on producing the country's food this happened just four years ago in almost exactly the same spot and here we are again what's going wrong for me there's a there's a real challenge here about what is the role and the ambition of the environment agency and i don't want to come out hard against the environment agency because i think that it, it needs to be a government responsibility that we want to really value this farmland. We hear food security is important, but food security and words don't feed the country. It's this farmland that feeds the country, and now we need the actions that are going to deliver food security. Tom and I were talking on David Armstrong's Abbey Farm. David, what was your reaction when you saw the devastation? Yeah, it was a little bit of, oh, no, not this again. Um, it... it, it as far as the, the main flood on this block of land, that um, I somehow expected that, and I have seen it before, and we have re- recovered from that. Where I do get particularly annoyed is where people create uh, issues, and we, we're another block of land where the Environment Agency have flooded some of our old seed rape but due to their inaction in the previous week. But but ultimately, if if this is going to happen on a regular basis, we need uh, we need a fix for it. We need. I think flood storage areas, uh, if this has to be one of them, we, I don't mind being involved with a flood storage area, but it would be nice to have some remuneration for when it happens rather than uh, than me carrying the can. Henry Morton, you farm a few miles down the road at Bucknell. What happened to you? Uh, What happened here for us is we had an unprecedented amount of rain, which I must admit, on Friday. Uh, the EA refused to re- lower the river next to us, which was bad, but then that's 
um, had the surrounding dike at the same level as us and that overtopped and all the water came our way from Stixwold and Poolham so we're looking probably at 150 acres of lost crop and a few million gallons of water sat on the farm that has got to go through a electric pump station that will probably take five to six weeks to move if we don't get any rain now which of course we are getting we are getting plenty of it again so yes we are back at square one so and this is obviously going to take some time to sort, but you've got a crop in the ground underneath all this water. We did have, yeah, yeah, that's gone. I've, had, I've got um, 70 acres of oilseed rape and uh, the rest is wheat and barley. And uh, the shallowest water I've got is four feet. So it might seem a stupid question, but what's going to happen to this crop? Um, unless it can hold its breath a very long time, it's dead. Um, it's got that much, that much water sat on top of it. It'll be saturated. Oilseed rape doesn't like getting its feet wet anyway and uh, the barley will be dead and the wheat will be dead. So, spring crops, here we go. So, what is this going to cost you? Between forty-eight and 60000 And is that just dead money? Do you get any of that back? No, none at all. How does that make you feel? Uh, it feels like I've had a kick in the guts and a slap in the face. And that's it, really. I can't do anything. I can't, I can't complain to anybody. The EA washed the hands of it. I haven't had anyone from the EA come round to say, very sorry, that was our dike that overtopped. It was our responsibility. They don't want to know. They don't want to care. Ben Ray, you're a bit further away at Stapleford. What's your situation? We've probably still got 200 plus acres underwater. Some of that, to be fair, is in a flood scheme, which is fair, completely fair enough. We understand that needs to flood. Although we don't get compensation, we just have to take that on the chin. When so, you say flood scheme, what does that actually mean? So um, there's a scheme down at Auburn and sort of South Highcombe Way, and they release the water on farmland to save Lincoln. And that scheme's put in 30 plus years ago, long before we were farming that land. But we know that's a risk with farming down there. The real frustration is the farm at Stapleford. The Witham runs through the middle of it. The river to us looks badly maintained. And as soon as the water levels come up, the farm floods. So you've just got the crop in the ground, just started to come through. Yeah. And now you're under feet of water. Yeah, it went in about two weeks ago. Went in in dream conditions. So what will happen now? We've got to wait for the land to dry up, assess the damage in two weeks, whatever, however long it takes time. And we'll either have to re-drill with a spring crop or try and salvage what's left of these winter crops. Thanks, guys. Back to NFU Deputy President Tom Bradshaw. We're seeing things happening that didn't used to happen. What's changed in terms of the management of our rivers? The Witham there, years ago, it used to be cut out every summer with, with cutting boats. All the vegetation was cleared and the water was able to flow down that main river. Unfortunately, now you see that um, vegetation growing in the river. I mean, today, yes, it's still up above the, uh, the water levels, but the channels are narrower than they used to be because this vegetation continues to take over. So is the Environment Agency's focus wrong? Their responsibility, obviously, is in large part for the ecology. Is it too far slewed in that direction and away from farmers, farmland, food security? I mean, so the Environment Agency's number one ambition is protection of the environment. And because of the precautionary principle, that is the overriding objective. Then protection of human life, clearly, that's another really important part of what the Environment Agency does. But they don't have to look at the business impact. They don't have to look at the impact on food production. And we would like to see those two things, a food impact assessment, a business impact assessment, become part of the functioning, the everyday evaluation of the Environment Agency when they're deciding whether to carry out actions so that they really can prioritise the value of this farmland and the food that it produces. And given that we seem to be seeing this kind of thing rather more often, do we need designated flood storage areas? 
I think we do need more designated flood storage areas. And I, I, again, I think that farmers will be willing to work with the Environment Agency and with government to provide those solutions. But then it is a case of how quickly can we get that water away once we've used that storage to protect the towns and the villages? And what does the compensation look like? Because this land is now taken out of production. Whether we'll ever see potatoes planted down there next spring, it all depends on the weather now over the next six months. But this, you know, it's an incredibly challenging start for them. And if there's no potatoes planted there, there'll be less chips in the supermarket shops and the price of those potatoes will probably increase but not to the benefit of the farm who won't get that land planted because they're storing the water. The Environment Agency really are taking a battering here and rightly so it seems. I really, really hope that the lessons are genuinely learnt and those in control, those responsible do take action so we avoid the devastation to crops and farmers' livelihoods next time the heavens open like this. Once again, the charity sector is stepping up with great support for those affected. We'll speak about that with Lincolnshire farmer Andrew Ward a bit later in the programme. But good morning now to our crop doctor, independent agronomist Sean Sparling. What have you got to say on all this? Yes, morning, Steve. I hesitate to say good morning, of course, because after the staggeringly dreary and wholly unprecedented spell of wet weather we've all seen in the last couple of weeks, we now find ourselves not yet out of October, but with the prospect of much more drilling this autumn, an impossible dream. I don't know how Wardy, by the way, is going to manage. I've heard him say on more than one occasion that he never starts drilling before the 20th of October. Well, if he's done that this year, with the rain on the 20th alone, he's going to have an awful lot of spring cropping. So, as I'm sure you've noticed, or hope you've noticed, I have been trying my best to be optimistic and to stay positive in the face of a looming wet October since the end of last month. But with the month now drawing to a close, I think I can openly confess and appreciate that positivity does not work. I've been keeping rain rainfall records for over 20 years and it's not only been the wettest September I've ever recorded but it is now also the wettest October by a country mile that I've ever recorded. 182 millimetres for me at home, still three days to go too and so far it's actually rained on fewer than half the days in the month. The 42 mil which fell between the 11th and the 13th was disruptive enough on its own but to then take 97 mil between the 18th and the 20th and another 19 mil on the 24th. And I'm well aware there'll be many people out there who've taken far more than that. But this is climate change in action. You know, it used to be these freak rainfall events happened once every 30 years or so, once in a lifetime. But the modern reality is these events now seem to happen every two or three years. On a positive note, and because most people I speak to seem to be comparing this autumn to the horror of 2019, we are, of course, in much better nick from an acres in the ground point of view. About 70% of the wheat and barley in the ground this year, as opposed to nearer 10% in 2019. So from that perspective, we are in better nick. But... Of course, we now have widespread flooding and very wet seedbed conditions on prime arable land, to say the least. And those conditions seem to exist almost everywhere, including on the Lincolnshire Wolds, bizarrely, and on the limestone heath, you know, with that water so reluctant to get away. Now, whether that's because of the willful dismissal of the idea by the Environment Agency of dredging certain areas most prone to flooding, the suggestion is almost unilaterally dismissed as being irrelevant by the EA every time it's raised who totally resist the suggestion that dredging or desilting any waterway would be beneficial to either wildlife or anyone else. And because of what many see as being decades of neglect to our riverways, which is of course being paraded
accompanied by the EA as them looking after and being beneficial to the riverbank wildlife, which is incidentally a huge double standard in my opinion, because apparently it is absolutely okay and acceptable to flood farmland and drown the tens of millions of little creatures like mice, voles, shrews, hedgehogs, moles, rabbits, hares, lizards, worms, and the countless billions of insects and other tiny creatures and bacteria that they sacrifice when that farmland is flooded. Henry Ward, once again underwater. Two months Henry's farm lay underwater last time, just three or four years ago, when the river was allowed to burst its banks. A river is supposed to be a channel in the ground with the water contained in that channel flowing below ground level. The banks are just the displaced soil that results from the action of the river. But with the silt levels in these rivers filling that channel up below the ground level, the flimsy banks are now having to hold in all the water that's riding above that silt. And when the water levels and the flow levels are such as we see now, no wonder the riverbanks breach. And with the silt and the water levels in the rivers themselves covering the outfalls to ditches, dikes, watercourses, etc., which are coming from farms, which incidentally are being maintained to a very high standard, the water in them just backs up and backs up and it makes the problem worse. The water can't get away. It's like half filling your bath with sand and then wondering why half of the water you normally put in there sloshes over the sides onto the floor. It's just physics. The reality is you only have to look at the situation in the Somerset levels about a decade ago. The levels were inundated as the banks of the River Parrot and the River Town overtopped and it took weeks, months for that flood water to subside. And after loud calls for more extensive pumping and dredging to get rid of those flood waters more quickly, eventually the Environment Agency dredged the River Parrot and the River Town and the Somerset River authorities now undertake frequent dredging to maintain those larger channels. And because of that, the Somerset levels have not seen that level of flooding since. I'm just saying that surely the EA should be doing the same thing in certain high flood risk, high flood record areas elsewhere in the country too, including up here, rather than just standing about in their orange high-vis jackets, leaning on the fence, watching the water flood the land and patting themselves on the back over how environmentally responsible they're being, like they were doing the other day. Nothing is a perfect solution, but when we utilise all the tools available to us, including looking at the results that we achieved on the Somerset levels from dredging and managing the situation by accepting that what they've done, or rather what they haven't done in the EA for the last 20 years has led us to the situation we're in today. Um, what was I saying? Oh yes, so we'll need to watch these drilled fields very closely over the coming week. Clearly there is a huge risk of the seeds physically bursting uh, and rotting in the soil. Someone asked me the other day whether it'll all be ruined by this wet weather and in answer to that, as with many crops of course, cereals like any others will stand their roots completely submerged in water for up to four or five days. They'll stand it way better of course if they've got some green leaf sticking out above ground but the honest answer to the question is that we're just going to have to wait and see. If it thins it out because of the wet or because of wash through of herbicides in some cases, then we just have to reassess things once we know what we're dealing with. We can always make a thin crop thicker within reason using nitrogen growth regulators, rolling them in the spring, using foliar nutrition in some circumstances. But inevitably, there are going to be some bits that are going to need redrilling. But as my dad used to say, we'll jump that bridge when we've crossed it. Keep an eye open for slugs as well too. They're not amphibious, but they will appear with a vengeance as the next few days unfold.
fold. Of that, I have absolutely no doubt. Slug pellets already a little bit tight out there, so do speak to your advisor about stocks and supplies. Right, look, too wet for any more agronomy advice. Fingers crossed, and do maintain that positive attitude. Dad always used to say as well that a positive attitude may not help the situation, but it will cheese off enough people to make it totally worth the effort. So let's see what the next seven days bring. Thanks as ever, Sean. Still to come on the Farming Programme podcast, we'll hear from the British Farming Awards winners, including a friend of the programme, the Lifetime Achievement Award winner. We look forward to some classic tractors coming to the area next weekend and check the markets and the weather for the week ahead. Next. The Farming Programme with our equipped steel stockholders, Withambrook Industrial Estate Grantham, supplying the region for over 40 years. Last week saw the 2023 British Farming Awards and today we're chatting to all the winners on the Farming Programme podcast, starting with the winner of the Lifetime Achievement Award, friend of the programme, Tenant Farmers Association Chief Exec, George Dunn. George, many congratulations on the Lifetime Achievement Award. I know you knew this was coming, but how do you feel at receiving this? Oh, well, I was probably more nervous attending tonight than I've ever been for anything, knowing that it's coming. It's worse knowing that it's coming uh, than and it's a complete surprise. But, yeah, I'm completely bowled over, completely thrilled that I should be selected to have this award. It's just absolutely unbelievable. 25th anniversary recently within the TFA, but FCN as well, Farming Community Network. What was your involvement in that? Yeah, so I was a trustee uh, with the Farming Community Network for about eight years. For five of those years, I chaired the trustees uh, which was a really great honour. And we made the change from moving from Farm Crisis Network to the Farming Community Network. And it's just so great to see what a fantastic job FCN is continuing to do and how it's grown since my time there. So, yeah, fabulous. There's such organisations like that. And, of course, in Lincolnshire, we have the Lincolnshire Rural Support Network. Are so vital these days, aren't they? Absolutely vital. And, you know, it's good now that we talk a lot more about our mental health issues, obviously, I've been aware of mental health issues in agriculture for many, many, many years, but sometimes people don't want to talk about it or don't want to hear things said about it, but it's great now that we can talk about it so freely and people can get the support that they need. You've been a champion of the tenanted sector for all these years. What would you say is the biggest change in the sector over those years? So, yeah, the biggest change is that we've moved away from secure Agricultural Holdings Act tenancies under the old legislation which gave people a lifetime or three-generational security, now we've got farm business tenancies. Security is much shorter. The average length of term is just over three years. 80% of all leases are five years or less. And now half the sector is dominated by uh, farm business tenancies. So that's been a big change in my time at the TFA. We've got many, many challenges within agriculture generally, but are there any specific challenges for the tenanted sector? So currently the challenges that are facing the tenanted sector are about being disenfranchised from the new markets that are developing for things like carbon, for biodiversity net gain, for nutrient neutrality, and also some of the government schemes that they find it difficult to get into because of the terms of their tenancy. And the other issue is what we call dislocation, where we're seeing some of our members are losing their land because their landlords are taking it back to go into woodland, solar and things like that. So that, that's a big, a big challenge for our members. And you're going to continue championing the tenanted sector going forward, as they say? I have got no plans to hang up my boots uh, thus far. The, the, my board might say differently, but at the moment I'm still carrying on. George, congratulations. Thank you very much indeed. Let's meet the other winners of the British Farming Awards Big Night with over 800 attending in Birmingham a few days ago, starting with Alex and Emily Crawley from Gloucestershire. And it's a new entrant against the odds. Can you explain? I think it was about those coming 
not from a, you don't come from a farming background, you don't have that family farm or that support network and breaking into the industry from the outside was a key part of it. And then, you know, the personal circumstances as well that have come with that. There's a little bit of background, you're a war veteran, PTSD. How did that translate then into farming? So when I came back from the Middle East, um, diagnosed with severe PTSD, um, and I was really lucky, uh, shout out to Wayside Farm, they gave me the opportunity to do some work experience with them. They wouldn't normally have done, but because I was a veteran, they took me on, and working with those Jersey cattle was just brilliant. It just really calmed me down, grounded me in a way that I hadn't had for years. And from that, I was able to then go and study. From that, I was able to get um, some jobs working on some farms, and from that, we were then able to launch our own business. It's been quite a long journey. been really lucky i've got an incredible wife who's been there with me put up with it all the way through and is now integral to it and what are you actually farming then uh so we do contract conservation grazing so basically we get paid to use some native breed cattle native breed sheep even some goats to help manage uh nature reserves uh, peat bogs heathlands wildflower meadows so we're taking areas of land that haven't been farmed for sort of a generation and we're putting farming animals back on there we're producing food from those uh areas we're introducing people back to livestock in those areas uh, where they haven't seen them for a generation but we're also doing it to improve nature and biodiversity and we get paid for it it's brilliant and has it been successful, the business, so far? For us, it's a real point of pride. It makes you know, reasonable profit without any subsidy. No BPS, no agro-environmental. We only have six acres of our own land of grass, and the rest is being able to get paid grazing, delivering results, and we turn a profit. Any words of advice for somebody who might find themselves in the same situation? Take the opportunities to go and work on whatever farm you can. Go and understand how difficult it is for someone to give you that work experience opportunity. Work hard for them, be grateful for it. Learn, soak up as much as you can, build that experience. Those are the opportunities out there, but you do have to grow after them. The Small Diversification Award went to Amy Bateman from Kendall, who's combined her love of photography with farm diversification. I asked her for any words of advice for anyone thinking of diversifying. Keep a record of everything, your spreadsheets, your books. Don't waste time on the things that don't pay and be very mindful what you spend your time doing because your time is money. And I've been really strict every single step of the way, tried not to waste my time on things that wasn't going to pay, um, be careful with my marketing, watch the budget all the time and it will pay off. David Rawlings from North Yorkshire has diversified on a larger scale, glamping, a wedding venue... And more recently? We uh, diversified a little bit more into uh, making spirits. So we, uh, we make a potato vodka. And that was uh, very much thanks to a, a good friend of mine that was helping me at the time from Poland. So he, uh, he had a bit of background. So we, uh, we put ourselves together and came up with a good spirit. So what prompted the diversification in the first place? I think not, not frustration with our financial situation with farming, because we all, we all love farming. But it just doesn't reward us enough for, for what we do, really. So we just have to add things to it. But farming is always the core. And if it wasn't for farming, we wouldn't uh, be able to do the diversification. You've got to think and do what you enjoy, really. It has to be, it has to be a little bit of fun as well as uh, financially viable. But you've just got to do it, really. I mean, we might have three, three good diversification enterprises which actually do make a profit. But we've had one or two that haven't, uh, haven't done so well. So... It's not instant, it's, it's a bit of a long-term thing and just go through with it and 
Don't give up. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. The next British Farming Award went to David Shelton from Leicestershire, the Sustainable Farmer of the Year. David, you're a traditional farm, but as part of your sustainability journey, you joined the Morrison's Net Zero programme. What does that involve? So that is uh, trying to improve your carbon footprint. You know, we do a, a carbon audit, measurement of carbon in the soil. And then once you've got a base point, you see what things you can do to improve that, especially in beef, which is for high emissions. But there's a lot of things you can do with that, especially with high health vaccination program, getting cattle to finish earlier. And you've certainly improved the environment for your cattle as well, haven't you? Oh, definitely. I mean, we're a big believer in animal health. We've got uh, roundhouses, which are very good for health. Our mortality is less than 1%, you know, and um, finishing cattle 18 months to two years of age, which is pretty good. I think we're in the top 10% of the lowest carbon emissions for beef unit. And trout. You keep trout as well, I gather. <laughs> it's uh, vertical farming, so the wastewater feeds endive, lettuce, uh, rocket, various green crops that we sell to uh, restaurants locally. The Agritech Innovator of the Year was James Duke, ADF Milking in Sussex, awarded for an innovation that improves dairy cow health and speeds up milking times. How, James? Which is a very clever product that treats each teat as an individual regardless of the teat size. A common problem is sizing a liner or a milking liner for an individual cow's teat. Cow's teats vary in size and our innovation controls the vacuum in the mouthpiece chamber of the liner which really helps the cows that haven't got the ideal fit to a liner. And the net result is far healthier cows and generally faster milking, better production and we sincerely hope more cow longevity as we get more and more years' experience under our belt. Okay, and this sounds quite complicated to me, and it sounds like something that might be quite expensive. It took some investment to develop, but it's actually very simple. But like all ideas, they start off complicated, and it's our job to strip them back, strip them back, strip them back, to have a a product that's reliable uh, and functional underneath a cow. So are you from a farming background, or are you from a a techie background? I'm basically an engineer who stumbled into uh, dairy engineering 35, perhaps even 40 years ago. But I've definitely found my place in life. I love it. Um, So I've got an engineering background, um, but my working career has been involved in dairy engineering. And clearly successfully. Yeah. Winning the Sheep Farmers of the Year from Kelso, Robert and Becca Rennie. We're a young couple with drive. Um very much um, looking for quality in everything we sell. Uh, we have a lot, of, a lot of sheep and we still strive for quality and our animal husbandry is, I would say, second to none. We're, we're very, very fussy about that. And I'd say your numbers are pretty big, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. We, don't, uh, we, we have a lot of sheep, but we uh, try and give them all the care and attention they need. We contract farm the Hill Place uh, and we, just, we were tenant farmers at the Lowland Place, but we just bought it this summer. So how does it feel to be superstars? <laughs> oh, I'm well used to it. I'm very much well used to it. But Becca's new to this. I'm new to this. <laughs> I've had a lot of red wine. Naomi Ramsey at Scotland's Rural College was the Ag Student of the Year. And Naomi has set a brilliant example to us all as she's overcome many challenges to get here. Yeah, that's right. Um, in school, I had a really tough time with dyslexia and that scunnered me completely. And I went out of education. I went on to work and then... Covid happened and I thought this has always been an interest, just do it. 
you just don't know what's around the corner and I've done it and this is what's came around the corner. Do you have a farming background, you or the family? No, no one in my family's from a farming background. It's just me that's interested in it and I like being outside so it was an interest for being outside and being with large animals. And you're qualified now, so where and what kind of part of the sector are you going to be working in? I am surprisingly really interested in agronomy, so I want to go down that avenue and potentially look at agronomist jobs. Away from academic life, what do you get up to? Um, I actually spend a lot of my free time during the shooting season going out beating. So um, grouse, partridge, pheasant beating, I love doing that, or just hill walking with my Jack Russell. Well done, Naomi. Congratulations. Thank you so much. So far, all the British Farming Awards winners have been individuals, but the family farming business of the year went to the Bluebell Dairy in Derbyshire, run by the Brown family. Rosemary, like many farms, you had to diversify when COVID hit. Because we're a small business, we just change it overnight into home deliveries, delivering our milk and ice cream, and we covered all our costs and came out much, much stronger. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Congratulations Thank for that. You. And for somebody who's in a similar position, any words of advice? Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's go for it. You need to work hard. You need to keep ahead of the game. You need to persevere. And it really is 24-7. But in terms of, yeah, sustainability, it's worth it. If we hadn't diversified when we did, we wouldn't still be farming on our farm. And I think that sums it up. Farm Worker of the Year at the British Farming Awards was won by Holly Atkinson from Devon, who's trained as a mental health first aider. Why do you think there's so many mental health challenges in farming, Holly? Well, I think there's a few things, really. It can be quite lonely work and um, often financially it can be um, there's a lot of pressures, burdens and a lot of it can be out of your control. So you can do the best job. But if you have a bad weather, whether that's drought or floods, um, you know, your whole livelihood could be questioned. So it's pretty demoralising when you work really hard. But some things, whether that's government policies or, yeah, like I said, weather out of your control. So sometimes you can feel a bit helpless I think. But there is help out there. Yeah absolutely I mean there's so many amazing um, charities and organisations. Um, I've worked quite closely in the past with RABI um, they helped put me through the training for mental health um, um, first aider and training so yeah and Yellow Wellies there's, I mean there's so many there's some great great um, people out there yeah. The Ag Contractor of the Year was from Cornwall AJ Hayward and Sons Kevin Hayward why do you think you won? To start with, I, I don't know, but I guess we do um, a lot of um, precision ag and that we sort of into our technology with sort of harvest labs fitted to our foragers, manure sensors, giving our customers sort of uh, harvested data on that. So, yeah, perhaps that's sort of what set us above um, a what you call a standard contractor. We go perhaps above and beyond what's expected from a normal contractor. And to be able to, to achieve this success, I guess you've got to make a fair investment, haven't you, along the way? There has been a lot of investment, yeah. Probably about the last 15 years uh, we've been doing like the technology side and it's um, year on year after year of, you know, of investment. Um, and it's not been easy you know, to start with 15 years ago. It was all new technology. Customers didn't really understand the benefits of it. So we've had to promote that and keep investing in that. So hopefully now we're going to see the benefits from it, perhaps. Because some of this tech and kit that you see on the farm when you drive past it is blooming expensive. Is that where the contractor comes in? Because for a farmer to have that kit to himself or herself is just prohibitive, isn't it? It is, yes. Yeah, I mean, the cost of machinery now has just got 
extortionate, you know, and for a farmer to justify, you know, 150, 200,000 pounds for a tractor is untouchable for them and that they can't justify it, you know, we have to do a lot of work to justify that work. So I think that's where the importance of a contractor comes in, that, uh, you know, we invest the money, you know, to give a reliable service so that, you know, the customers still get their silage in and harvesting done when they need it to be done and that. But, um, you know, we have the up-to-date kit to do it. I met Matt Slack at the awards too. Matt's a farmer and butcher from Yorkshire. What did you win, Matt? So I've just won a Digital Innovator of the Year Award, which is a massive shock because I really didn't think we were going to win it. But we've won it and I'm proud as punch. How did you win it then? What did you have to do to win it? So I'm all about showcasing through TikTok and social media, Facebook, and I'm all about educating a lost generation. I feel that the older generation sort of know where all the food comes from, whereas the meat industry and the younger generation have no idea where it comes from. So I opened the doors, I took the barriers down, I opened the doors and I said, let's showcase where the meat comes from, where this product comes from, and why we should be proud of producing the best British, the best meat on the world, which is the British meat on the market. And this is why today it's come to the British Farming Awards and I've won Digital Innovator of the Year. So many characters at the British Farming Awards last week, including Dairy Farmer of the Year, Cumbria's Patrick Morris-Ayton, who, like so many, is very keen on the health and welfare of their herd. Yeah, we're very keen for everything to be as perfect for the animals as we possibly can have it. And you've just made quite a big investment, haven't you, this brand-new rotary parlour of yours? Yeah, so four years ago, we put in a rotary parlour with literally all the tech we could possibly put on it, just about. Um, new cubicle shed, and then we've put in a new state-of-the-art calf shed since then as well. And what difference has that made to the animals and, of course, to your production? Um, our production has gone up by nearly 2,000 litres per cow. Our health and welfare has improved ooh, drastically. Our uh, mastitis incidence has reduced from 32% to 8% which is quite significant, especially compared to the UK figures. Our lameness has gone from, I think it was 10% down to about 0.75% as well. So it's quite significant for us. Yeah, I think quite an effect on all this. And pregnancy rates are good as well, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, we went from 24 to 31 in the first 18 months of being in the new sheds. Just the space and the cows could really show their potential in it. Beef Farmers of the Year were Greg and Rowan Pickstock from Powys, whose big goal is reaching net zero. Um, we've been doing uh, rotational grazing with the cattle, trying to get the best from grass. And then we've been doing multi-cut silage, a bit more like the dairy farmer, trying to get the best uh, quality grass in the silage. And then yeah, trying to save on brought-on feeds. And then uh, we're doing some tree planting, uh, hedgerows, and we're working very closely with a genetic company as well. Excellent, brilliant. And you have a semi-extensive beef finishing system. It would be a, it's a grass-based uh, diet we're on, and uh, very little concentrates in the in the mix. Okay. Who else is involved in the farm then? Oh, it's a it's a family family farm, and we've got a a few guys that help us as well. Grassland Farmers of the Year were Chris and Bella Mossman from Keradigian, who, following some tough times, have transformed their farming system. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have to say I can't take that much of the credit. It's all been Dad. Um, it's been a really tough kind of six, seven years, to be honest, with kind of TB breakdowns, and that's really impacted the business. But the kind of weird silver lining is that it's... Well, it did kind of push Dad down a different 
route in terms of their approach to farming. I kind of fortunately joined at a time when things are back on the up. So I've kind of come at the perfect time to join the business. But yeah, it's been definitely a time of transformation and really rethinking how we farm. And you've got a nitrogen reduction plan in place. How are you doing that? So we're doing a number of different things. It all starts with the soil. So it started with analysing our soil, seeing what they were doing, what was going on, what kind of activity was happening in there and going from there really. But we've been looking at kind of foliar fertilising, mixed species swards, so reseeding kind of at least 50 acres per year. And once they're in, they don't get any nitrogen. So each year, obviously, just the nitrogen level comes down and down, plus the foliar feeding as well has kind of enabled us to reduce our nitrogen quite significantly. So it's actually working? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Good, good. And you've been diversifying as well? Yes, I've been trying. (laughs) Um, Yeah, lots going on really kind of outside of the dairy herd. So um, we're growing a small crop of heritage wheat, which is really exciting. That's going to local businesses, to bakeries and restaurants. Uh, market gardening so doing my best to grow some kind of no dig um, market garden vegetables which again selling locally and yeah just really seeing how we can kind of make use of our land and really get people on farm to see how their food is grown. Winner of Arable Farmer of the Year Ed Horton from Gloucestershire couldn't be there but from here in Lincolnshire silver for Arable Farmer of the Year congratulations to Colin Chapel, who sadly came home from the BFAs to find a quarter of the farm underwater. Well done to all the finalists. It was a brilliant evening hosted by Farmer's Guardian editor Olivia Midgley. Now, if you're a lover of those classic tractors and old farm machinery, and who isn't, you'll love the Vintage Tractor and Heritage Show celebrating its 20th anniversary at Nottinghamshire's Newark Showground next weekend. Organiser Elizabeth Housel, tell us more. This show is very special because we are bringing back 20 exhibits from the original show. And along with our show celebration, we are also recognising a number of anniversaries, one being the 175th anniversary of Mark. Marshall Sons and Co. and we've got a great selection and collection coming within our feature marquee. We're also celebrating 60 years of the new performance Fordson range. We've got a nod to the 75 years of the Land Rover Series 1 and we've also got for this year we've got over 200 lorries, vans, other vehicles as part of an ERF and an Atkinson truck celebration as well. So lots of vehicles. I think we've probably got just over a thousand exhibits on site coming up next weekend. Brilliant. And you've got a live auction and a sort out on the Sunday. What's happening there? So we've got the auction that's happening on the Saturday. That's been run by uh, Brown & Co. We've got, I think, over 400 lots at the moment that's going to be sold on Saturday morning. And then, yes, we have a sort-out, which is, I suppose, an auto-jumble of tractor parts, any paraphernalia um, to do with the vintage sector. um, That's happening on the Sunday morning. And other things going on, like remote control truckers and tractor and trailer rides, and a service of remembrance. Yes, that takes place every year, and we'll obviously be observing a two-minute silence at 11 o'clock. A lovely service, and we've got lots of nods to the agricultural world as as part of that service uh, of remembrance. Really looking forward to it once again. Full details at Newark Vintage Tractor Show online. Thanks once again for joining us this morning. Elizabeth Housel from the Newark Showground. Thank you very much, Steve. Lynx FM Farming. Market reports. Starting with livestock and from Mason's Rural at Louth Livestock Market. Good morning, Henry Simpson. Good morning, Stephen. Welcome to another weekly roundup from the Louth Livestock Market. It's from Friday the 20th and Monday the 23rd of October. 
Starting off with our Friday sale, it was our second autumn special cattle sale of suckle cows and store and breeding cattle. It was a good show all round with 222 head entered. Starting off with the tops of the markets, starting with the store steers, which were topped by C.A. Oliver of Ashby by Partney to £1,360 per head or 377 pence per kilo. The store heifers were topped by H. Brainson of South Willingham to £1,600 per head and also to J.D. Stedman of Woodall Spa to 416 pence per kilo. The store bulls were topped by F.W. Robinson, son of Horsington, to £900 per head or 375 pence per kilo. And the breeding bulls were topped by C. Marriott of Usselby to £1,580 per head. The in-carvers and the store breeding cows were both topped by F.W. Robinson and son of Horsington to £1,340 per head and to £1,360 per head respectively. And the cow and calves were topped by H. Brown, son of South Willingham, to £1,610 per head. There I was up the Friday sale and moving into our Monday sale, which was just sheep this week following the special cattle sale. And there was a few less entered this week with the challenging weather conditions. It saw an SQQ of 259.35 pence per kilo and an all average of 260.15 pence per kilo. The top of the day going to D&G rolls of OSB to £133 per head or 283 pence per kilo. There was a cool user of 64 entered this week, which saw an average per head of £103.05 with a top of the day going to Skenelby Texels achieving £177.50 per head. The store lambs, there was a good number entered with 53 forward, which saw an average per head of £68.74, with a top price going to A Priestley of Bracebridge Heath to £86 per head. And just as a reminder, we are selling again tomorrow, so we are taking entries for all prime and cool cows, as well as prime, cool and store sheep. So please don't hesitate to contact the team for all marketing options. It's been Henry Simpson from the Mason's Real Team. Thank you. Thanks, Henry. To the grain markets and with guide prices, Open Fields' Alice Killam. Morning, Alice. Good morning, Steve. In truth, it has been a rather dull trading week. Has anything really changed? Not really. It's been pennies down followed by pennies up. We are starting to notice a slight lift in demand. This comes from better weekly export sales in the US and some more buying from the Chinese. You would think this has to be beneficial for global markets. Similarly, some mixed weather reports are now making their way out of Brazil as they try to predict the size of their second Safrina maize crop. The question here is will it really match up to the current numbers being quoted? Thursday saw a Reuters report released which suggested that all exports by sea out of Ukraine had stopped overnight. This brought a brief spike to our market but this rumour was later quashed. It is a good illustration, though, of how the world remains reliant on Ukrainian and Russian produce in the spot positions. So, as we wait for global stories to develop, we are just left ticking over within the same range that we've been at since harvest. We are following the French, whose export numbers are 22% behind this time last year. To reach the USDA forecasted number of 37.5 million tonnes, they're going to have to go at an almost record pace to achieve anything close to this. It is therefore becoming clear that for the UK, a key area will be the two ethanol plants and the distilling plant in the north of England. If we work on the current forecasted numbers, these three plants could take up to 20% of the UK crop, so it's important that they keep going. The other thing we must keep an eye on is the price of imported maize in the coming months. The Virgo cannot use maize at all, but Ensis certainly can, and are using some now alongside UK wheat. This Brazilian maize crop could be a very interesting story indeed in the coming months, as this will have bearing on the world maize prices in the spring. We don't want cheap maize displacing UK wheat. Away from wheat, barley has at last seen some export out of the East Coast. Money is pretty poor, but thankfully something is taking place. We now need some more boats to follow. 
Beans are slowly creeping up too as forecasters attempt to predict the crop number for the UK. I'm going to suggest that it's going to be lower than last year. The one anomaly remains rapeseed. Wednesday and Thursday were slightly better days on the French Matif, but it has quite a road to travel. Ukrainian rapeseed is displacing UK, so demand is slow. We need outside markets to help here too, and to be fair, we have seen higher soybean numbers and a higher crude oil during the week. So they are trying to help. For the moment though, we just wait for some shorts to appear. It seems a little early to fall on our sword just yet. Guide prices for this week, circa Friday morning. Feed wheat, November 180 to 185, February 185 to 195, May 190 to 200, with Group 1 milling premium still holding at 60 to 70 pounds. Feed barley, November 150 to 160, May 160 to 170. Finally this week, all seed rape, October 340 to 345, and December 345 to 350. As usual, please call for firm values. Thanks, Alice. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. Well, what's it going to do to us this week? I'm afraid there's more rain to come and being under low pressure, it's another unsettled week. Southerly winds in the mid-teens MPH today. Sunny spells and showers and daytime highs in the low teens Celsius. Similar for Monday with the wind easing a little, mostly cloudy with more light rain. Midweek sees the wind pick up a little, still mostly southerly, but gusting into the 30s. Stronger with heavy rain forecast on Thursday and Friday, possibly as much as 15 to 20 mil. Overnight lows are between 8 and 10, but turning cooler by the end of the week. And with more rain forecast on top of the devastating floods of the last 10 days or so, let's go back to Bardney and Lincolnshire farmer Andrew Ward. What can be done to prepare for another onslaught, Andrew? Well, I think when you're looking at farms, it's moving stock from lowland to high, to high ground. If you've got livestock, that's, that's what you can prepare. You can look at your feed and forage stocks, see where they are. Are they on the ground that's a bit higher that will they stand a bit of water? If you're an arable farmer, it's uh, getting machinery off the fields, uh, making sure you've got all your dikes and everything are OK, which obviously that's a longer term thing. You need to do that on, in, on, on a regular basis throughout the year. Um, and just making sure that uh, yeah your roofs are all okay and that protecting grain stores um, and things like that. Um, and if you're in an area that is prone to flooding, make sure you've got sandbags available. Then if you're an environment agency, obviously it means making sure your pumps are all set to work, making sure that they are working, making sure that flood doors on the edge of relief schemes will work and function. And so there's a lot of preparation anybody can do. And from the environment agency point of view, the flood doors and so on, has that not happened? No, in the past it hasn't happened. And I know down in Somerset in 2014, they tried to operate some doors and they were seized up solid with silt, uh, so which obviously hadn't been cleaned for a long while. Here, there's areas around here in Lincolnshire that I've heard that they, they, um, they've got automatic sensors on them. These sensors weren't working when they thought they were working, and that's because they hadn't been checked. And so there's lots of things that the environment agency don't do uh, that they should do to help themselves but at the end of the day we all do realise that, that all this costs a lot of money to do and the money comes from higher up it comes from government and government are restricting the amount of money flowing down into the system and I apologise for the pun on that but if the environment agencies haven't got the funding from above there is a limit to what they can do but at the same time is when they do get funding they use it on things that they shouldn't be doing 
And we've got under this body of water here, newly seeded crops, mm. newly sown crops that are going to be lost effectively. What about those crops that were ready for lifting, potatoes, sugar beet and so on? Well, there is that. There is exactly where we're stood now, Steve. We've got an area where there's 100 tonnes of potatoes under the water, if you like. And uh, that's, yeah, that's, that might only be five acres, six acres, but it's still 100 tonnes. It's quite a lot of thousands of pounds of produce. And it's, it's food that ultimately won't end up on a supermarket shelf. Potatoes last year were, were running in short supply and ran out, imported in. It will be the same this year, even on a bigger scale. And this is the thing we have to look at. It's food security. How much do we value our own food grown in Lincolnshire? We produce a huge amount of food into the nation's um, uh, system here. And, it, and it's how, much, how important is that? So food security and ultimately, I guess, prices. Exactly, and this and this is the thing. And uh, when you look at the prices there are, they're on a dwindling scale at the moment for a lot of things. But then, if, if we're short, the prices will go up in the supermarket. But the other problem we have is that a lot of those increased prices in supermarket don't filter back down to the farm gate. And so you've got the, the British public end up paying more for the food, but the British farmer does not get that increased re revenue. This is going to cause an awful lot of worry for many farmers who've been adversely affected by, by this. There's an awful lot of dead money, awful yeah. lot of lost money. Fortunately, there are organisations and charities that will help. I'm thinking Farming Community Network, locally Lincolnshire Rural Support Network. And you have an involvement with Forage Aid. Tell me a little bit about what that involves. Yeah, you, you're quite right, Steve, that the, the charities system, if you like, in the agricultural world is, is massively important at the minute, and particularly when we've got uh, events going on like flooding. And LRSN, I know, in Lincolnshire are, are very, very busy, more calls than they've ever had for a long while, whereas we with Forage Aid, a charity that we started in 2013 when, when the floods happened up in Cumbria and Wales, and uh, that that is getting busier and busier all the time and, and we operate on the back of extreme weather events and if such as floods if a farmer has lost feed or, or forage or bedding through floods and uh, then we'll do our best if it's a genuine case we'll do our best to to find that to replace it free of charge and we rely on the goodwill of other farmers so our sort of hashtag within the charity our remit is farmers helping farmers because it's mostly farmers that are running the organization and we're asking we rely on other farmers to donate and and, and they do and this is what is so unique about the farming industry that you've got some farmers beyond their knees with lost livestock will be drowned floated away you've got feed and bedding will be floated away yet you'll have somebody not very far away will come and give them a lot of help for free and replace the the produce which is fantastic and let's not forget the contractors the hauliers all yeah. give their services don't they? they they do all of that you're quite right and we rely on those to to sort of move the stuff about we've got jcb and we've got bailey trailers two fantastic supporters of us and if we need some machinery into an area where we need some help with moving equipment about or moving forage and straw about we can we can get equipment very very quickly uh, national organization is the young farmers we've got the young farmers clubs there is a young farmers club in every region in the country so to get tapped into them is fantastic because they help us a lot wherever we're working and at the minute besides just obviously here in lincolnshire scotland had a, has had a lot of flooding over the last few weeks not just in the last few days so we are uh, helping rsabi which is the royal scottish agricultural benevolent uh, institution up there and we're helping them with, with the scottish farmers so we, we work nationwide 
And if somebody is in need of forage aid services, where do they go for information? Yeah, it, it, and this is important. If you, if you um, Google forage aid and go onto the website, you can uh, all the contact details are on there. And also Addington Fund, we've just recently merged with the Addington Fund, which are a farming housing charity, and we've merged with them as well, and Google Addington Fund as well, and it will come up with forage aid as well. So social media and Google, we're easily found. Andrew, it's coming on to rain again. I think we'll get back in the car. Thanks a lot, Andrew Ward. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank you. I do hope you're coping with the weather as best you can. If you need help or advice, do talk to the Farming Community Network, Lincolnshire Rural Support Network, the Addington Fund or Forage Aid. Their details are easily found online. Next week, we'll look at some new crop sensing tech and preview the Midlands Machinery Show. I'm Steve Orchard. Until then, well, have as good a week as you can. The Farming Programme with Araquip Steel Stockholders with Umbrook Industrial Estate Grantham. BSI ISO 9001 accredited.